Hello, everyone, and welcome to one of my favorite episodes of the show. We're going to talk about the Rebels versus the Empire. I did want to give everyone a big spoiler warning here up front in these transitional episodes. A lot of times we just, you know, stream of consciousness, start comparing games to other games. And so some spoilers are probably going to come out of nowhere at you. We don't spoil the end of any games or any major plot twists in, in my mind. But if you really... You know, if you're new to the franchise or you haven't played certain games and you intend to and you don't want them to be ruined, this might be an episode you want to skip for now. Uh, and if you want to go right to the next one and it's not available on your podcast app, well, you can find it on patreon.com slash ffweekly. We've recorded all the way up through the end of Final Fantasy VII. And you can also find a whole lot more Final Fantasy talk, video game talk, Star Wars, Marvel, DC, all that kinds of fun stuff at patreon.com slash dcproductions. Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, before we get into talking about the plot, themes, and characters from Final Fantasy II, we thought this would be a good time to jump in to one of our favorite Final Fantasy tropes, the Rebels versus the Empire. It's a theme you will see appear throughout the franchise. You could probably get really creative and make an argument that it appears in every single game in the series. And we're going to argue it profoundly appears in about six or seven of them. But it's a common theme in the franchise, largely inspired by, of course, the Star Wars franchise. So we want to talk about all of that. Akira Kurosawa with Seven Samurai before that. But we also want to talk about a few other of our favorite pop culture franchises that have the Rebels versus the Empire and some of the ways in which Final Fantasy borrows from them and maybe they borrow from Final Fantasy. This, of course, being a good time to jump into this because Final Fantasy II, the first time in the series that you've got yourself a pronounced group of Rebels, the Empire oftentimes noted directly as the Empire in the games, of course, probably most famously or first famously in Final Fantasy VI, and then your, your groups of Rebels anywhere from the Returners to Avalanche to the unnamed bandits in Final Fantasy XII. So, Ira, where would you like to start in discussing your favorite or our favorite aspects of the Rebels versus the Empire trope? Just to run down the list real quick, we are going to mention most prominently Final Fantasy II, Final Fantasy IV, Final Fantasy VI, VII, XII, XV, and Type Zero. Those will be the games that we're going to use as our lens into this particular motif. So why don't we start with some of the broad motifs of Rebels versus the Empire. The Empire tends to be, in general, the, the aggressive of the two groups. It tends to be more militarized, faceless, and mechanized. They've usually got some sort of campaign of conquest or imperialism, while the Rebellion tends to be defensive, more loosely organized, made up of individuals we can see, especially being able to see their faces, and they tend to be more spiritual or natural or magical. Interestingly to me, the Rebellion is, as often as not, made up of, or at least led by, royals. This we see in Star Wars, most obviously from pop culture, the rebels being led by, I mean, they're led by Mon Mothma, 
who's a, a senator or former senator once the Senate is dissolved. But as far as our main heroes are concerned, Princess Leah, uh, being the princess of Alderaan, is a royal who's, in, who's at the very least part of being in charge of the rebels. And so it's, it's interesting to me that they're often not just the common man, though we'll, we'll get into that a little more later. No, sure, I think we see that now. most recently. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, we see it most recently, I think, in Final Fantasy XV with Noctis being quite clearly a prince, you know, very early in the game. Uh, of course, spoilers, big fat, we, we say it all the time, where this podcast, we're going to be jumping deep into this stuff. So we're going to be spoiling even the most recent games like Final Fantasy XV, and this is right at the beginning, but he becomes... We might also I mean, he's be the spoiling king. the most recent Star Wars. Oh, good point. <laughs> good point. But yeah, no, Noctis, by pretty much the beginning of the game, is a king of a, well, a kingdom. That's what you're typically a king of. It's a, the small one, and it is the one kingdom, Lucis, that has withstood becoming a part of the Niflheim Empire. So, so in a way, yeah, the whole kingdom is a kingdom of rebels. And if you watched the film beforehand, Kingsglaive, I thought it was a really great movie, and I thought it did a really good job of driving home the fact that they had all the characteristics that you talked about being important there. You could see their faces more than you could the people of Niflheim. They were covered up more in armor. They, they were absolutely the magic people. They have the magic shield that guards the city. But also, clearly, they are royals. And it is up to Noctis's group of mostly commoner friends, though Ignis right. did grow up a little bit in the aristocracy. Gladiolus a different role inside of the aristocracy, but certainly not rich and not royal, either right. of them. Nowhere and near so. in line for the throne and nowhere near as rich as Noctis. Right. So there are some common man characters in our rebels. In fact, there are a lot, but it, it's interesting to me that even in some of our outside examples, most notably Star Wars, the rebels have some royalty to them. And I think that speaks to uh, an interest in royal lineage and an interest in lineage in general. And most positively for me, anyway, that despite social status, we can all stand up against, you know, the evil empire. You know, we can all, we all have a stake in it and we are made equal in that fight against, what, fascism? Aragorn's another one. Yeah, it's almost always a symbol of fascism the empires or of tyranny if you want to use a broader term but sure well in star wars the the main fighting force of the empire are called the stormtroopers and that's taken directly from the german stormtroopers i've also always thought though never confirmed that emperor gestal and the gestalian empire was a direct reference to the gestapo and as most people know the lord of the rings is heavily based on world war ii and isn't especially shy about being a message of anti-fascism. Right. And particularly of duty for bystanders. Another thing we will see as a common element, perhaps Terra is, is the best example of this, of somebody who is kind of a bystander. In fact, to the point where she doesn't even really remember the history of the world. And very early in the game, she's given this choice. And it's like, you have to decide which of these things seems more evil to you. You can't just stand on the sideline and do nothing. That's kind of the whole point of the hobbitses 
<laughs> those, right. filthy, those filthy there's, hobbits is, right? There won't be a shire if you allow this other thing to continue. You have to make a stand. Right. No matter how desolate and far away Tatooine seems, right. the Empire's tyranny is still felt there. Right. And Luke feels it hard, and he is ready to, to take an action, too. Yeah. And and so there, and you've got yourself an inciting incident: the Empire coming in, invading. Typically early, we get that in Final Fantasy XII, the very first cutscene. It's Princess Ash is getting married, and then they're off to war because Arcadia is invading Dalmasca. So you've got the Empire again as Arcadia in this one, and a tiny little kingdom. So again, a royal princess Ash. She's in a way the leader of the band of rebels, despite the fact that she's a hereditary heir to a throne. Right, and that's also exactly what happens in Final Fantasy II. You've got this little kingdom of Finn, the queen of which has rebelled against the Polynesian Empire, and for that, their their town of Finn has been destroyed in our four heroes. This will lead us, I think, right into our, our next more granular topic. The, our four heroes are running away from the sacking of Finn, and the very first thing that happens is you get attacked by Imperial soldiers, and you get your butts kicked pretty hard. Yeah. Starting out weak. The very first thing that happens in the whole Star Wars series is that the Empire shows up, they start blowing everything up, they assert their dominance, and our heroes, the droids, are running away. Yeah, absolutely. And you immediately lose one of your four. And we'll get more into those four characters and Leon, uh, the, the fourth of whom goes missing and what happens to him. We'll get into it a little bit here in this episode and more, more in depth in the, the next one. So one of our more granular motifs is that of the Rebels. So who in these six or seven games counts as the Rebels, and why, and what do they embody? Like, what, what is, uh, you know, thematic about them that makes them the good guys? So in Final Fantasy II, we have the Wild Rose Rebellion, led by the Queen of Finn, by Queen Hilda of Finn. In Final Fantasy IV, we have the PC party, who don't get a special rebel name. And it's worth noting that of that party, four of them become rulers of their various nations. Edward, Edge, and Cecil and Rosa all become rulers of their various kingdoms. In Final Fantasy VI, we have the Returners. In Final Fantasy XII, do they get a name in Final Fantasy XII? I'm not sure they ever do give themselves a name. I don't believe so. Okay. And in Final Fantasy XV, those four boys, I don't think, give themselves a special name either. Though they look really good the whole time. Yeah. No. Yeah. (laughs) They're (laughs) well-dressed. And in Final Fantasy Type-0, it's it's Class-0. That's not necessarily their rebellious name, but that is the name of the group. So they all get... You know, we've got all these groups who are rebelling against this oppressive empire. And what do you suppose makes for a good rebel? Why are these characters we're willing to follow against this imposing regime? Well, presumably, they've got to have an ideology of sorts. They've got to be in the right about an issue, usually being oppressed by the empire. But Right. It uh, makes a good case for your for your stance if the first thing that happens is your town gets wrecked, which yeah. happens in two. It happens in 
Type 0, it happens, as you were saying, in 12. It kind of happens in 15. It's kind of a twist on the trope in 15. What happens is you're booted out of your city and you essentially have to go into hiding and there's a, a hostile takeover. And there is, in again, in the movie is where yes, much yes. of Lucis is destroyed. And One of the it's things, beautiful. I mean, that's a horrible thing to say, but... Right. It's beautifully done. It's that beautifully fight scene is incredible. Done. It really is. And one of the most interesting things I think about 15 is driving around these uh, these villages outside of the main capital city and hearing the radio reports and yeah. seeing the newspapers about, oh my God, Lucius has fallen. Right, and there's that epic shot of the airships flying overhead as the team kind of stands out there and yes. looks over at the city and that's your visual of the hostile takeover being finalized. So it's pretty easy to empathize with the team who's just had their place destroyed. But in Final Fantasy IV, you take the role of a pair of Imperials, Cecil the Dark Knight and Cain the Dragoon. And because Cecil has questioned the King of Baron, the first mission of this game is to go to the Town of Mist and kill their guardian spirit. Blow it up. Right. Well, they don't know initially. So they, they go in knowing that they're supposed to kill the, the monster, the Mist Dragon, which was right. later called an Eidolon, which was a name that they would use for various summon monsters. But when they get to town and they deliver the package, they don't necessarily know that they're about to slaughter this entire town except for one little girl. Right. And that's their inciting incident to then rebel against the Empire. So all of these... And Star Wars does a similar thing, right? Grand Moff Tarkin takes the Death Star to Alderaan and says, Listen here, princess, you're yeah. going to tell me what I want to know or I'm going to wreck your joint. And he ends up blowing up a planet. Blows up a planet. One of the things I think is interesting is we've left it out of the conversation because it's subtly so. And again, like I was kind of saying at the beginning, you've got to get creative if you want to include it. But Final Fantasy VII definitely has a group of rebels You'd have to argue that the Shinra Corporation is the empire in those games. But an interesting inversion of this particular trope you're talking about, where the empire as the more aggressive force comes in and destroys the small town or takes over the smaller kingdom, Final Fantasy VII begins with you as a rebel group going in and blowing up a Mako reactor. And... Right. And so the explosion is actually on behalf of the good guys against the bad guys. And it poses a different but also interesting question. Absolutely. About the uh, nature of, of using that kind of violence to get your point across, right? Is it right. not the same type of inciting incident, right? there? The, I mean, it's literally they drop you into the mission of going to blow up that reactor. And I would absolutely include Final Fantasy VII on that list of Rebels versus Empires. I simply forgot to mention it. I think I put it in our notes, though. I think it's in there, yeah. But it, it is a little bit because, like I said, they don't really name the Empire in that one. But Right. And I think Shinra, as a corporation that is slowly killing the planet, knows it's doing so and is unconcerned with the effect it's going to have on humanity, uh, is only concerned with maintaining its own power, absolutely fits the motif, the stereotype of an Empire. But you're right, that's a fun inversion of the rebels running in there and, and committing an act of eco-terrorism in a way and yeah. blowing up the reactor. So is it possible then, I mean, presumably the characters leading the various empires, they consider themselves the heroes of their own story. They consider themselves on the right side. Even the ones like Emperor Mateus of Palamecia 
opening the gates of hell, he thinks he's doing it for the right reasons. Right. So is it possible that just because these guys came in and burned your city down, that the rebels aren't always in the in the right, that they're not they're not always in the position of being the good guys? I think there's an interesting argument to be made there. I was actually reading up a little bit on some thoughts that people had about Final Fantasy XII, and while I don't fully buy it, there is a fan theory out there that the group of so-called heroes aren't actually so much that they're fighting, again, as we talked about, for Princess Ash to regain her throne. They're upsetting a piece that's been in place for, I think, four or five years. I can't remember the exact amount of time before they decide to try to take it back. Vane Solidor has shown a willingness to work with people. He's not really treating them like slaves. He's treating them like any other kind of kingdom throughout history. I've been watching some stuff recently on Alexander the Great and yep. Good you know and how right and and he isn't he's actually seen as this great unifying figure. But what did he do? He went around and sacked city after city after city. He didn't do it peacefully. You know, they won the people over and then eventually brought them better lives in the way of a, a united empire that had roads and water systems and all the other stuff that we know that, that came from the great Roman Empire and, and some of the stuff that would come after that. So it's like you're paving the way for better lives of people through violence and there is an argument to be made that sometimes that works and I'm not sure, you know, it gets less complicated once Vane Solidor is like being corrupted by the gods and you know, sure, it starts getting sure, real crazy yeah. at the end as it often does but for much of it there is I think some moral ambiguity about what are you really fighting for? What makes this a worthy cause? And I think it's one of the reasons why, and we'll probably have this conversation multiple times, but why Vaughn and Pinello are actually interesting and awesome characters. Yes. And they're some of the most hated in the franchise. But They're absolutely necessary to that story. Because and, and, if Princess Ash doesn't have them, she has nothing. Right. And for this trope and for this whole idea, because they are, as you put it, the common man. They... Right are the reason why freedom is supposed to be important because yeah princess ash's husband is dead and and that's rough but she could live a very cushy life if she wanted to she's not the person that's got to worry about starving in the street vaughn right. is the person that's got to worry about starving in the street which leads us into uh, our next motif which we've talked about a little bit here the rebel leaders usually if you're going to have some sort of a militarized response to this great tyrannical force, whether or not they're doing it for the right reasons or whether or not their lasting legacy will be one of peace, a la Alexander the Great, or one of nihilistic gods, a la Kefka. There's got to be somebody who at least tries to organize this rebellion. Our examples from Star Wars, as we already talked about, Mon Mothma and Princess Leia, both of a uh, moneyed aristocracy, though from different planets. Queen Hilda of Final Fantasy II, small kingdom, but as we've talked about, small kingdoms are still kingdoms. We've also got Princess Ash and Prince or King Noctis from 
Final Fantasies yep. 12 and 15. Some of the ones, though, that are less less in the aristocracy, Cecil of Final Fantasy 4 might be said to be the leader of that PC party, though it should be noted that having been taken in as an orphan by the King of Baron, yeah. And eventually taking the throne, being given the throne. We've also got in Final Fantasy Type-0. This one's more difficult because the Dominion of Rubrum does have a leader, but that person isn't really the leader d- directing the force against the Militus Empire. Rather, Class-0 is led by Dr. Aresia al-Rashia, the Academia's doctor and arch-sorceress. And we'll get more into her and some of the weirdness that comes with that later. But she is, I mean, she's in a privileged position, but she's not really a royal. She's not really aristocracy. And even more so, the returners of Final Fantasy VI are led by Bannon. Where this guy comes from, what his motivations are, are really left kind of ambiguous. And then, halfway through the game, I'm pretty sure he dies, right, when the world breaks? Yeah. They never say it exactly, but you know, you don't see him again after that. So we don't really know where he comes from, but the Final Fantasy VI band does have a couple of royals in it, Edgar and Sabin, but neither of them, like nobody in that group of 14 characters really stands out as the specific leader. You can make a case for main characters amongst Terra and Celeste if you wanted to, but that is a that is a much more egalitarian group. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think at the beginning I probably thought of Edgar as the leader by de facto because he was a king, and I don't know if that's just me placing you know, my own expectations and understandings of how this stuff typically works as opposed to how it would work uh, in a Final Fantasy game. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that Final Fantasy VI has got a pretty egalitarian group. There's a little bit of, you know, Celeste was a general in the Empire, but that's not part of the decision-making process. She was a warrior. and Right, and Cyan was uh, very close to the the King King of of Doma. Doma. Right, but but he doesn't take any more leadership position than anybody else. In fact, for that matter, both Locke and Edgar do what Arbus tells them to. Right, that old man in Narsh. Right, right. And yeah. we don't know his background either, so he might be some. You know, he might be of a higher social status, but certainly he's not a king, or we know about it. And they do seem to, without ever saying it outright, make decisions in a democratic kind of way as a group. They all kind of decide what to do. They do, yeah. There's that point when you're in the Returner's hideout and there's like four or five of them standing around that table. Bannon mm-hmm. and Locke and Edgar and Sabin's in there, I think, and Terra's sort of off to the side. But yeah, they, they all stand around that table and talk about what to do because the Empire cometh. I think this is also reinforced in a gameplay mechanic because all throughout Final Fantasy VI, they let you, the player, as we've talked about, the Hand of Fate, decide what the party is going to look like. There are a bunch of times throughout the game where you're split up into different units, different people are going to go different places, and you get to decide right up to the very final dungeon in the game, the final boss, who's going to go where. So it's just very democratic, even in the way the gameplay works. You know, it's funny that I haven't mentioned Game of Thrones yet, but it it doesn't have (laughs) this exactly because I think you could argue that the Targaryens were the empire. They're certainly the house that's had the most power for the longest amount of time. There was a rebellion. I mean, literally there was Robert's Rebellion, how King Baratheon came to be, and that set up all of the storylines to come in that show. But one of the things that's interesting, as we've talked about with this one again, 
one of the characters you root for as a rebel type character, someone who has all of the rebel tropes, who is someone who's from the outside, who starts off weak in a you know, faraway land, all this other stuff is Daenerys. Targaryen, yeah. Daenerys yeah. Targaryen of the, the house that's been in control for like a thousand years except the last 17 while Robert's been there. Right. Uh, but, but she's she, much more sympathetic. Yeah, well, I know, right? Her <laughs> father was more, the Mad King who was like slaughtering people, right? Well, right. Her claim to the throne is that her father was king and her father was one of the most unpopular kings ever. So it's a dubious claim and I won't spoil this one because it is still relatively new though I think everyone in the world watches Game of Thrones at this point I have seen (laughs) two episodes of Game of Thrones I know that was just Um, for me right yeah it was just for you but the most recent reveal the most recent big twist that a lot of people saw coming again takes one of the characters who we could most easily think of as rebel outsider doesn't have the lineage. It has even had to forsake whatever lineage they might have had. Uh, turns out, very important heritage. <laughs> As right. it turns out, absolutely royal lineage, very much royal lineage. And so, you know, it's fun and interesting that that tends to pop up a lot. I wonder how many stories out there we could find where there really is just a band of rebels where there's no one with royal lineage or heritage in the group at all. At least in Final Fantasy VI, like you said, it's not like Edgar's the leader. In fact, they go out of their way. I was just watching, playing through the beginning of that game the other day, and like the first 20 bits of dialogue you get about Edgar are about how much he loves women. It's all just the people in the castle talking about, oh, he's such a hound and no one really pays him much attention. He's such a goofball. It really undercuts him as some super important, full of himself monarchy. And he doesn't come off that way. So I think Final Fantasy VI has as good a case as any story for a legitimate just band of rebels, a, a ragtag group of people who don't know what their purpose is or what they're supposed to be doing and all have different reasons for fighting against the Empire. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, and to that end, what then... I mean, we often don't get what happens next. So what then is the end goal? What's the end game of these guys? I mean, they want to beat the big scary bad guy. Like, you want to defeat the Emperor because he's awful, right? You want to defeat Kefka because he destroyed the world. Okay, you want to defeat the Emperor of Nibelheim because, man, that place is messed up. Yeah. But then <laughs> what? Like... And then we install American-style democracy. I think the observation that there isn't always a plan to, once you've defeated the bad guy, once you've taken down you know, the king of Baron, or once you've taken down, for example, Saddam Hussein, what comes next? What do we do next to actually make the lives of people better? Fine, we're not being destroyed by, you know, we're not being attacked by monsters or shot by a beam of light from a giant tower, and that's good, <laughs> <laughs> but we also need to think about why do, you know, I, I get, you know, Cecil's a good dude. He should be a king. He should be the new king of Baron. That's great. But what is what is the goal of the rebels beyond just defeating the emperor? I think that's one of the most interesting and prominent themes in Game of Thrones that it really <coughs> hammers down. And that's why it's called Game of Thrones. You know, I, I understand the books were called A Song of Ice and Fire. But there's a reason they went with that for the show because 
that almost always seems to be the case. I want to win the Iron Throne. Oh, okay, great. Now what? No one's ever got a plan for that. <laughs> you know, it's like right. No, nobody well, ever. Let's put seen... some cushions on it first, and let's yeah. let's start oh, talking about. <laughs> let's maybe update the design work here a little bit. But or I... my point was from a metaphorical position to make things a little softer. We don't all have to chop each other's heads off, right? There can be we can start talking about right how to handle our problems. So speaking of people who don't talk about how to handle their problems and instead do really awful things to try to take over the world, let's start talking about our empires. Yeah, the, the bad guys are fun, right? Yeah. The Star Wars Empire is is a galactic empire. They have taken over most of the empire by force after the creation of the Grand Army of the Republic. Thanks a lot, Senator Jar Jar. <laughs> so they've got a they've got a huge army. Oftentimes, this army is faceless. They all wear the same kind of uniforms. They all wear helmets. They tend to have advanced weaponry. Especially, they tend to have one really big weapon, and we'll get more into that later. And their goal is basically to take over for the benefit of their organization and especially the people at the top of that organization. So in Final Fantasy II, this manifests in the form of Emperor Mateus of Palamecia. He has decided, having found the power to do so, to open a gate to the underworld, or hell, depending on your version, and let loose monsters. And furthermore, He's got some really impressive engineers, and he is creating a super weapon, which sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. The King of Baron. In, in Final Fantasy IV, this one's a little different. The King of Baron has an engineer on his team called Sid, a uh -huh. Final Fantasy classic. And Sid has invented airships, and so the King of Baron has decided that his airships will form an army that he calls the Red Wings, and this air force goes around bombing the hell out of places and making them do what they want so that they can collect crystals. Turns out the King of Baron is actually the fiend of water in Final Fantasy IV, and the King of Baron's been gone a long time. Yeah. And furthermore... Hot twist. <laughs> furthermore, it's all the uh, plot of uh, an ancient alien on the moon, which we'll get into a little more later. In Final <laughs> Fantasy VI, we have Emperor Gestal, who again has a guy on his side named Sid, and Sid has created a way to drain espers of their magic, and put that magic into machines called Magitech Armor. In Final Fantasy Type-0, we've got Marshal Sid Alstein. Some of these names mm -hmm. get yeah, I difficult know, to pronounce. I know. And Marshal Sid has taken over from that empire. He's usurped that emperor and taken over the Militus Empire. And he actually has a goal that's a little different. He wants to destroy the crystals because the crystals, he feels like, control everybody's fate. The crystals control what people do. Crystals make people forget about the dead. And he wants to break out of that cycle. Which harkens back to uh, a discussion we had about Final Fantasy I and Free Will. Yeah. So tell us about the empire of Final <laughs> Fantasy XII. Well, Final Fantasy XII also has a Sid. Actually, the first time Sid was specifically evil and not just being held captive or just being used by the empire. He's just straight up the evil mad scientist of... Final Fantasy 12, who in a plot twist is Balthier's father, which right. is 
another way of so he's still related to the characters and and there's a, a small thing that makes him a little i don't know if that makes him sympathetic because he's still a crazy ass who it makes got, balthier pretty sympathetic yeah and he goes mad on you overusing the Nethocyte that's super potent. Uh, I can't remember what they call it off the top of my head right now. We'll, of course, get that when we do Final Fantasy twelve. But And then there's a really fun twist on it. Again, Final Fantasy seven. something that I just keep remembering. It's so interesting, all the risks <laughs> they took in that game and took these tropes and just flipped them a little bit because this works two ways. One, Sid is a good guy. In fact, a playable character in that one, one of the more popular ones in the franchise. But he did at one point work for Shinra. He was working for their space program, trying to get them into space when everything went wrong in that famous scene. So he used to work right. for Shinra and only hates them now because they pulled his funding. Right. And their version of then the evil scientist who is in charge of giving them special powers and special weapons is, of course, the incredibly creepy and memorable and still nightmare-inducing Dr. Hojo is in charge of making them more powerful than they should be. (laughs) And and as an evil empire, the Shinra Corporation isn't releasing monsters necessarily, though they do eventually accidentally release monsters, but they're much more about tapping the energy of the Earth to the great detriment of the Earth. Uh, and the people and it's extreme uh, economic control. If you're literally right. bleeding the planet of its resources and you're the only one who has the ability to do it at that rate and you completely control the global market and that's how they were able to take over. It's funny, like when you first go up Shinra Tower, right? The mayor's office is like halfway up and he doesn't right. do anything. Right. The president of well, Shinra is the guy who runs the city. And the, the poor people literally live underneath in, yeah. a, in a city underneath an elevated city, they live underneath the people of means. Yeah. It's definitely an economic empire more than it is. Like you mentioned, having a huge military. I think in this one, with the like they've got Sephiroth, but that goes obviously yeah. haywire. He's not. <laughs> there, there are some guys. It's who economic got. tyranny. They have that kind of control over the world. Right. They do have soldiers, but it is much more about. We have more money, and if we want, we could get away with Mm -hmm. uh, dropping a piece of the city. Right. So your, your big evil empire can't do it just on the emperor's actions alone. They usually need somebody to, if not several somebodies, to go out and do their bidding. So this is where we get into the, the what I'm calling the Dark Knight trope. The big example from Star Wars, of course, is Darth Vader, there are, though there are other Dark Knights. He's the, uh, the darkest of the Dark Knights, I suppose. Everybody knows Darth Vader. It's one of the most famous symbols in the world. I think we're pretty safe using Darth Vader <laughs> as our our archetype for this particular trip. So what Darth Vader represents then is the the arm of the Emperor. He is the one who enforces. If you think you're going to steal yourself some Death Star plans, he's going to come on your ship and wreck stuff. And you may you may get you may get away with those Death Star plans, 
but he's going to make your day a whole lot tougher. He's going to kill a lot of dudes doing it. So the Dark Knight trope tends to be this character who dresses in dark clothes, is a physically imposing person, is a person who can enact an awful lot of mayhem on a whim. And we've got several examples in Final Fantasy. From Final Fantasy 2, we have Leon. Leon is that fourth character who, when you're trying to escape the burning of Finn, goes missing. He is also Maria's brother, Maria being one of the other main characters of Final Fantasy 2. The first uh, the first or second time you run into the Dark Knight, as he's called, Maria recognizes his voice, and that's when you begin to realize, oh, this be- might be our missing character. In Final Fantasy IV, Cecil Harvey, who uh, is one of the, your main characters, he is literally the Dark Knight class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't get especially cute with that one, but uh, he—he's also got a pretty awesome suit of armor. He does, and he eventually becomes a paladin. But in Final Fantasy IV, we've got a couple other characters who also fit this trope. You've got Kane, who uh, ends up leaving the party at one point, and then when he comes back, he's an enemy. So again, he's the arm of the the emperor. He's the arm of the bad guys who you know this this main force, and he's. He's a cut above, and he uh, definitely kicks some butt. Even more awesome suit of armor. Right. Like, still classically amazing suit of armor. Right. And very troubled by what he does once he remembers what he's done. That's another characteristic of this Dark Knight trope. Darth Vader, not real happy with what he's done in his life to, to get to the point of being Darth Vader and killing his wife and thinking he's killed his unborn children and eventually kills his mentor and eventually decides at the prompting of his son to to no longer be Darth Vader, right? Cecil, through the prompting of the people around him, turns into a paladin. We've also yeah. got, in Final Fantasy IV, we've got a character named Golbez who, who turns out to be Cecil's older brother and is being controlled by that Zemus character I was telling you about, the alien on the moon. So again, he's got this... He's doing it, but he's sort of... He's sort of coerced into doing it, right? In Final Very Fantasy VI... Very much the way Anakin Skywalker was coerced by Emperor Palpatine. Right, absolutely. Manipulated into thinking he was going to save mm-hmm. Natalie Portman, and then not so much. <laughs> Tough rocks, Natalie. In Final Fantasy VI, now this is one, I don't think we've got a direct Dark Knight. I think we can understand the character of General Leo through this trope, but I don't really think he fits as a Dark Knight. First of all, he doesn't have the, I mean, he's got a cool green coat, but he's definitely not dressed in dark clothing or armor, right? Right. So so he's on the side of the Empire. He's one of these people who has been enhanced by Sid. In the same way that Celeste, Kefka, and Terra all... Well, I guess Terra wasn't, but definitely Celeste and Kefka were. He's hes well-balanced, though, and he he wants to fight with honor, but he's still doing what the Emperor tells him to do, right? Yeah. How about this? Celeste. You think Celeste is the Dark Knight? Who some people call Celeste. We call her Celeste, and that's how it's going to be. Well, <laughs> I, I, we call her Celeste because the word is celestial. Correct. Okay. Which doesn't necessarily mean that's the right way to pronounce it. I'm just not going to start pronouncing it differently. 
you know, 25 years after the fact. <laughs> uh, okay. But Celeste obviously does not have the dark armor, though she does have armor. She is armored. And in fact, she has a, an important armor ability to be able right. to draw any magical attack to her weapon, right? Which is kind of a part of her character as well. Definitely was a general in the Empire, and she has her changing of the heart, changing of the guard moment. In fact, it's revealed that she was supposed to join your party and that she was supposed to, at just the right moment, bring Kefka a particular piece of magicite, I believe? Or... I don't know what she's supposed to do. I can't remember exactly what it is she's supposed to do. We'll, we'll do that when we do the plot of that game. But she's supposed to betray her friends in that moment of truth. She turns for sure, as we're all pretty confident she will, on Kefka and yeah. the Empire in a very Darth Vader to Emperor Palpatine type of way. Super dramatic. Lightning going off everywhere. <laughs> right. The world right. coming to an end. You know, that kind of stuff. You make an interesting case. Uh, I wouldn't have said Celeste. I don't know if it works, if it fits. I just thought of that, but yeah. Well, and and one of the things about tropes is that not everything is going to fit neatly. We're just looking for certain characteristics that follow certain patterns. So certainly she follows some of those patterns. Mm -hmm. In Final Fantasy XII and Final Fantasy XIV, we have the various judges. They, They have the look, right? They're fully armored. Uh, very elaborate armor, too, in those big helmets. Is there a any judge in particular in any of those games that have them that you would say fits the Dark Knight trope? So, first admission here, I've not completed the campaign for Final Fantasy XIV uh, just yet. I'm having too it, much fun yeah, doing other stuff. Yeah. It, is, it is on our list, and hopefully by the time we get to a point where it would be appropriate enough to do the podcast, we will have both completed the campaign there. So I don't know for sure... In that one. In 12, for sure, you're looking at Judge Gabranth, who is, again, spoiler revealed to be Bosch, Bosch's brother, one of the main characters. It's his twin brother, both of whom go through these periods of time. Bosch is seen as a traitor. He's supposedly murdered. Well, he actually did murder the king, but as it turned out, at the king's request, it's really complicated political stuff between them. And, and again, like the other characters we've talked about Gabranth has his you know sort of I guess we'll call it a, a come to Palpatine moment when he <laughs> <laughs> when he eventually turns on Solidor because his job is actually to guard the younger brother Larsa so he turns on Vane ultimately still just out of loyalty for the Empire in a way just for someone else in the Empire, the person who he's been charged to guard the whole time, and then perhaps some relationship with his brother made him sympathetic to the cause of the rebels that Vane was far more dangerous than his younger brother. But the rebels cannot complete their task and win the day at the end of Final Fantasy XII if not for Judge Gabranth deciding to fight against his king. The other character I want to talk about with regards to this Dark Knight trope is Sephiroth. Now, Sephiroth, as we learned in flashbacks and then in the compilation of Final Fantasy prologue games, was a good dude, at least as far as 
his role in, as a Shinra soldier was concerned. But, but even the common man, like they knew who Sephiroth was, and he was celebrated as a hero, not just as a, as a soldier of this big corporation. However, we, he becomes the main bad guy of Final Fantasy VII because he learns about his backstory and has a mental break and totally, totally loses it. So what do you think, Drew? In, I mean, he, he's really a hero when he works for the Empire, Shinra Corporation. He doesn't really become anything like a Dark Knight other than the awesome jacket until after he breaks with Shinra. Do you think we can understand Sephiroth by using this trope? I think we can. And I think, again, this is another example of Final Fantasy, just or Final Fantasy VII in particular, just inverting this thing, right? We've got rebels blowing stuff up at the beginning instead of the Empire. And our Dark Knight character, awesome suit of armor, memorable weapon. If, if ever there was a yes, weapon that could... Uh, you know, <laughs> lightsabers, and then there's Sephiroth and Cloud with their memorable weapons. So, yeah, you've got yourself, instead of him going the Cecil route of dark character that becomes a paladin, Sephiroth is a paladin that becomes a dark knight. He That's one of my favorite things about the game Crisis Core, which I did not expect to be good, which ended up being really good, and it's the unabashed way in which they embrace Sephiroth in those games as a good guy, as someone to look up to, as somebody Zack and Angeal and Genesis and these guys look up to because he's a great warrior, but he's also a good dude in that game. It, it's not like all over the place with hinting, oh, one day this guy's going to go mad because it doesn't really work that way for him. He really is you know, a shining star. It's one of the, the first time you hear his name in that game, it's Cloud as a kid talking about how he wants to go off and become him in that memory with Tifa, right? Yeah. So again, I think you've just got Final Fantasy VII going backwards with a trope. It's a paladin who becomes the Dark Knight and instead of his Palpatine moment being the one where he rejects the darkness and decides to embrace the light, he rejects the light and his Palpatine moment is when he goes and grabs the machine off of the Genova and he right. burns the town down. And yep. so it's just the complete opposite. And instead of enlightening, you know, destroying the Empire through the blaze of lightning like Celeste and Vader and everyone has to, he through a batch of fire embraces an evil far worse than what the Empire stood right. for. He just wants to burn it all down, like Alfred says, right? Some people yeah. just want to burn it all down. So he and Kefka are similar in that regard, though I think Kefka's madness is a bit more giggle-worthy. <laughs> uh, that's good for him, giggle-worthy. I like that. So in addition to Dark Knights, empires need a lot of people to be oppressing the masses. And this is where we get into our faceless soldiers for the empire. Emperor Palamecia has faceless soldiers. He's also got a lot of monsters that he draws from the underworld. The King of Baron has his Red Wings, his Air Force. Emperor Gestal has his Imperials and his Magitech Armored Imperial Army. Yeah. In Final Fantasy Type-0, the Militite Empire... <coughs> nice, nice naming there, Militite Empire. Yeah. They've got a bunch of faceless soldiers also. There are the Magitech soldiers, which are basically magic powered robots in Final Fantasy 15. 
in Final Fantasy VII, there are there are definitely Shinra soldiers and and Shinra tanks and whatnot, but they're not really the focus of the of the enemies, right? Right. I mean, they've got those blue uniforms though that do kind of cover their faces and uh, you know the the standard soldiers. But once you reach class soldier, then yeah, you're just a dude with a big sword and some spiky hair. Right. And everyone right, right. everyone can see your damn face. And, so, and your eyes glow, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's the telltale sign. Yeah, it's the eyes thing. So maybe that, in a way, is their uniform of the first class, the soldier people who've been injected with the Genova cells. But again, yeah, not a not a direct one in there, I don't think. One of the most interesting things to me about these faceless soldiers, these stormtroopers, is that, at least in Final Fantasy, a lot of them get faces. A lot of them decide to, you know what, this whole Empire thing is not working out. These guys don't really have the best in mind for the common man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn and, and no longer be part of the Empire. We didn't get that in Star Wars until the most recent episode, Force Awakens, with my new favorite character in, in Star Wars. Not favorite favorite, but certainly high on the list if I were to make a list. Finn. FN2187. Finn from Star Wars Episode Seven. He yeah. is the first... Imperial Trooper we've seen take his helmet off and there's a dude under there. Now in the prequels we had the, the Jango Fett clones and we did get to know Commander Cody a little bit. Yeah. But these are still mostly, I mean, being clones and having most of these uh, clone troopers be more or less the same guy or, or a version of that guy. And I know with some of the novels and video games you can get into more of some of the personalities of these guys. But in the movies, not so much. Finn really is the first one to see what his brethren are supposed to be doing and decide you know what no i'm not gunning down this village and you know it's great and probably almost certainly a coincidence but final fantasy 2 the first time we see rebels versus the empire it's the kingdom of finn <laughs> yeah that that's almost certainly a uh, a coincidence it, but it, it would that's be a pretty really cool coincidence great. It would be great if the Star Wars guys threw a little love back Final Fantasy's way because it's not like it's an unknown thing. So I wonder if that's out there. We'll do a little research, see if we can find if there are any ways. Maybe that's one. Finn, that would be a big one, naming a character you know is going to be that big a part of your plot after a kingdom from one of the least known Final Fantasy games. Right. That would be really cool if it turned out to be the case. But, Finn, there it is. So in Final Fantasy, some of our former Imperials, Joseph from Final Fantasy II, who meets a gruesome end in that game. Yeah. Yeah, he decides for the sake of his daughter, he's no longer going to meet Imperial, and he helps you out a bit, and then does not end well for him. Oh, another interesting parallel, and I think this one is on purpose. The Red Wings of Final Fantasy IV. Red Five was Luke's call sign during the Death Star run. I am almost entirely certain that the Red Wings are named after the Red Squadron. I am too. I think that's absolutely true. And I also think that it just worked out for them that they have the Red Wings and the Avalanche, two <laughs> famous and successful hockey teams. I think that's just something that they enjoy. <laughs> I think it was like, oh, that's fun. A little shout out for no particular reason. But yeah, I think you're right. The Red Wings come from that squadron in Star Wars. Right. Some of our other... So we already talked about Cecil and Kane, and we'll talk more about Sid and Rosa as former members of the... Uh, of the Kingdom of Baron later on when we get to Final Fantasy IV. In Final Fantasy VI, we have few former Imperials or reformed Imperials. Tara Branford, arguably the main character of the first half of Final Fantasy VI, 
so she was found as an orphan, right, in the other world, in the in the Esper world, by Emperor Gestal. Right. So presumably she was raised by Emperor Gestal or raised in the Empire. But yeah. then she got that slave crown on her, and we don't really know. Uh, was she raised apart from Celeste and Kefka and Leo? Celeste yeah, doesn't really seem to regard so. her as a sister, yeah. right? Yeah. So I don't know if she really counts as an Imperial. But Celeste Cher absolutely was, and as, as you have already described, had her, her change of heart. General Leo seems to really believe in what the Empire is doing. Not quite sure why. I think he sort of thinks they're going the the Alexander the Great route that, you know, once we're all united under Emperor Gestal, we can we can make things work for the common man. And then we have Sid, who does not really seem to believe in what he's doing because he knows he's killing those espers. Right. And that's why he helps you escape. Once it turns once they realize that just murdering all the espers is the quicker way to get the magic that they want they uh, start doing that, he realizes, oh, this has gone way too far, and he helps you escape. In Final Fantasy VII, we have not so much a former Imperial or a former corporate stooge in Reeve, who controls the... the okay, so let's talk about the pronunciation of this character. I say Ketshi, and the reason I, I say it that way is because the, the Irish cat fairies... Uh, the word she is is fairy in that sort of Irish Celtic lore, and, yes. and so it's it's Ket She. But for a long time, I said it Ket Sith because that's how it's spelled. But yeah, that's how it's uh, spelled. I did too. I actually switched on that one as well. So Ket She in Final Fantasy VII as somebody who's actually still inside the Shinra Corporation, but helping you out through his giant weird toy magical toy right. that can right. <laughs> destroy in battle if you need to and also cloud though uh mistaken on his former rank was right. previously briefly uh, a member of the military for right. shinra yeah absolutely also sid who almost always works for the empire and most of the time has a change of heart or just ends up aligning with the heroes. So I haven't played Crisis Core. Zack eventually seems to have some sort of a change of heart, right? Can you tell me a little bit about how some of those guys were working for Shinra and then maybe decided not to be these faceless soldiers? Well, Zack goes through a very late transformation, and most of it has to do with, uh, again, his loyalty to one particular person, the character Angeal, who is his like immediate superior, the guy he looks up to, his hero. And Sephiroth is around, but he really looks up to Angeal, who is the first person to wield the famous Buster Sword. It's his sword is handed down ultimately to Zack. But it really is a, like with the other people, once he figures out what Dr. Hojo is doing, what's going on with these terrible experiments, it's at the incident in Nibelheim, and not Niflheim, Nibelheim. Right. Though they uh, share the same etymological yeah. root. Right. Which is Norse, correct? Right, yeah. Yeah. And we can get and, more into that later. Yeah, <laughs> oh, we, we'll have to. But it's the incident as well, and it's him trying to, you know, take care of his buddy, and he's not for the Genova program and, and all of that stuff. So he has a similar turn in that way. Uh, also, he falls in love with a girl... And he's not so sure about all this 
military stuff anymore. He might just want to go. But then that last mission doesn't go so well for him. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Even knowing it's coming, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> but yeah, so I think Zach, again, that's somebody who, until pretty much his last moments, until or his last several decisions there at that incident, going into that town, was working for who we would come to think of as the bad guys. And looked up to Sephiroth, the bad guy. And when they're working at that whole game, you're like running around inside Shinra Corporation, like cashing your Shinra bucks. Like, it's weird, man. You're working for the man and you know it. But it again, it, it gets into that side of the trope that we're talking about that they've always got. Never, ever do they have an empire filled with just faceless evil people and everyone's a cartoon villain i hate using that phrase because cartoon villains can have layers as well but sure, uh, sure. a two-dimensional villain right uh or a two-dimensional group of villains there are always at least one if not multiple sympathetic people inside the empire and in final fantasy 7 they just go out of their way to be like and this guy is cool and that guy is cool <laughs> you know so The evil empire also often has, I mean, they've got their they've got their army, they've got their their dark knights, but they've also got usually one big weapon that says, "If you mess with me, I will destroy your planet." So the Star Wars weapon is the Death Star, and then eventually the Star Killer base. You got the Eye of Sauron. The Eye of Sauron, absolutely, which is paralleled in Kefka's tower. Yeah, uh, buddy. <laughs> though at that point, I'm not sure Kefka qualifies as the Empire anymore, as he's more of a nihilistic mad god. But yeah. certainly it's, it's that weapon of mass destruction. Final Fantasy II has its Dreadnought. Uh, Final Fantasy IV, the Giant of Babel. In Final Fantasy VI, there's not really just one weapon. There's just sort of the Magitek. I mean, we already talked about the Kefka's Tower, but the Empire has its Magitek armor, both ground force and air force. Final Fantasy Type-0... The uh, Militus Empire has its Ultima Bombs. It absolutely obliterates one of the four kingdoms early on in the game. In Final Fantasy VII... The big Fantasy cannon VII. they put on the... Right. <laughs> There's that so, giant so, yeah. cannon. So Final uh, Fantasy VII has that giant cannon in that town of... Well, first it was in Junon, and then they put right. it on Midgar. But really the giant weapon in Final Fantasy VII, again, flipping those tropes... Is the weapons of the, the planet? Weapons. Yeah, ruby and diamond and emerald and armor, but yeah, again, Final Fantasy VII going the other way with it, where the weapons are of the planet and are actually kind of on the right side. <laughs> In Final Fantasy XV, the town, or excuse me, the kingdom of Lucis has its great shield, which isn't a, a giant imperial weapon, but rather a, a defensive mechanism. So even though uh, the Emperor of Palamecia in Final Fantasy II has uh, the Dreadnought, that actually gets destroyed about halfway through the game, and he more relies on the monsters he's pulled from hell, which parallels Final Fantasy XV. Yeah, Final Fantasy XV uh, is especially pronounced again in the film Kingsglaive. They use just dropping mystical beasts out of the sky, including one of them being... Clearly, I think Ultros from Final Fantasy VI. They, yes, it's a giant purple octopus. Ultros. Yes, yeah. they're they're dropping monsters out of the sky onto the city of Lucis. And though it, it hasn't been in this conversation because it does stay mostly out of the Empire and Rebels category, but in Final Fantasy VIII, there is famously monsters that 
come falling out of the sky that aggregate right. on the moon yep. and that again another moon thing but that's a whole crazy scary using monsters as a weapon from the sky and then Final Fantasy 12 they have the Nethysite which is more like a version of a small like maybe you would think of a like an H-bomb or a nuclear weapon or something it's so much power in such a confined space and it becomes the thing that everybody is after this small crystal again so that's pretty common in final fantasy that the crystals hold great power and if you combine them all or if you control them all then you can wield a certain amount of power over everything that is uh and the nethysite i think is you know maybe not again a weapon in the more traditional sense of like the star killer base or the death star or uh, starships or any of these kinds of things but it's a bomb essentially it's a magical bomb is what it is And before we get into wrapping up the big ideas embodied in all of these motifs, there are a couple other games that we haven't really been discussing because they don't fit neatly into these motifs and tropes, but I still think there are enough parallels that they are worth discussing. Firstly, Final Fantasy Tactics. Now, there isn't really an evil empire in Final Fantasy Tactics. It's a lot more like... You know, Game of Thrones are probably just a real-life war. You know, there's houses on all different sides. It's really complicated. No one's really a good guy in yeah. that. Certainly no faction is a good faction. But I think if you wanted to get really creative, you could say that the motifs of the Empire are held by the nobility in that game. And that that's best embodied, actually, by the character Argoth, who just makes... You know, the state, the status of how you were born, whether you're highborn or lowborn, the most important thing. And that really is the battle at the center of that game. So the rebels are kind of like the common folk, right? Anyone who's not. And we do sure. kind of have a band of rebels. This is where it fits in a little bit better, led by a nobleman, a royal in Ramza Bale from a noble house. Sure, sure. I. Like you said, it's it's much messier. It's much more complicated than what we've mostly been talking about, where there's a, you know, a faceless empire and a scrappy group of rebels. So yeah, I, I would say the noble houses definitely uh, take on that imperial role, but also the church, especially since it's having its strings pulled, right? You know, in, by the by the demons in in the background, as it were. But I think you can also say that when Ramza and and Delita and them are uh, on the side of the nobles in the early chapters, the people they're fighting, the the thieves and marauders, the I, the Death Corps, I think they're called. Right. The Death Corps might be the rebels in that case, and so maybe we're the Empire. It's not quite as clear cut as Cecil and Cain yeah. having their turn in Final Fantasy IV, because the Death Corps aren't exactly. I mean, they got screwed. No, no yeah. doubt about it. But they're not exactly, uh, you know, lifting up the little people. Right. Yeah, it just it, it gets a lot messier and, and along with that, yeah, some of these characters like Delita could almost fit into certain elements of the Dark Knight trope, but he also fits in really well with all the rebels sure. um, for most of it. Uh, you know, Ophelia is another royal who 
holds an important role in usurping uh, the way of things, as it were. Gafgarian, I think, actually, is sure. the closest that you've got to a Dark Knight in that game. He's got the suit of armor. You can see his face. He's, he's again, it's it's more nuanced. He's a more complicated character than that. But I do think it's, it's a very Vader-like, you know, whenever he shows up, everyone gets more tense. Right. Um, it's also yeah. worth noting that the uh, judges of Final Fantasy Tactics Advance and then Tactics Advance 2, what was it, 12 and, and 14 and such, shortly they also fit into that faceless dark knight trope rather well right uh and then if there is a mega weapon in that game it's it's the zodiacs uh which pair nicely to what we were just talking about again in 12 with the nethesite where it's more of a you know the crystals become the big weapons and then moving over to Final Fantasy IX, there are some fun and interesting ones here, again, where they kind of flip it, where if there is an evil empire, it's Alexandria. It's like where you you come from. It's Queen Braun, and you know pretty early on in that game that, you know, there's manipulation going on there, so it's not, you know, again, spoilers for the end of that game. There, there aren't other empires versus rebels stories where you end with a huge celebration in the capital of what was the empire. <laughs> right, right. Right. So so it's a little bit tougher there. We do have a rebel group, though, that give, that has a name, Tantalus. Sure, absolutely. They, you know, they qualify into a lot of those tropes. A, a lot of these other things, the royal who helps lead the group of rebels with Princess Garnett to Alexandros, and, you know, she even uh, drives that motif home with the changing of the name and the cutting off of the hair and going by dagger her sort of transition from being a royal first to being a rebel first. That's pretty great stuff. Uh, Kuja is an interesting twist on the Dark Knight trope because we can't, not only can we see his face, we can see just about all of Kuja. Yes, we can. <laughs> not not the same type of armor thing, but he flies in on a dragon, kills everybody every time he shows up, very intimidating. And he is the, the right hand, as we've talked about. You know, he is the, the violent top end of again it's not really the empire in this case unless you want to consider garland and you know his oh, mega yeah. weapon the garland ship and the eye and how that sort of parallels with the eye of sauron like if that's the true empire then it it fits a lot better there but you know again it's not an empire with a uh, army of maskless soldiers it's just kind of these two dudes well they they kind of do though because they make all the black mages that's right i guess i guess that does count so it's a great twist yeah. on it yeah i mean it's it's just as sad as raising a bunch of clones yeah. right or uh raising a bunch of child soldiers right it's it's just as awful yeah uh the the black mages vivi in particular are some of the most sympathetic characters in that game yeah i almost might put garland of final fantasy 9 as like the the palpatine emperor type figure and brawn is his puppet not not even like a darth vader or darth uh, tyrannus puppet but like i don't know the the trade empire yeah the, like one of the political <laughs> the, people yeah yeah totally because kuja is that that troubled youth who's been taken advantage of who does at the end yeah. as we've said have a, a come to palpatine moment and decide you know i'm not sure i want to fulfill my one purpose here and then Zidane's got to go in there and get him. And it's all very emotional and oh, wonderful. That, and, and that song, it, man. Yeah, it's so good. But yeah, those, you know, again, not totally neatly fitting in there. But again, enough of those tropes that I think it's worth kind of pointing out. And we'll have plenty of time to 
dive into the specifics in each game when we get to them. Sure, and I, and I think it is worth remembering that that tropes are tools, right? They're, it's never going to be exactly perfect. It's all about what patterns do we recognize and how can we use this to further understand and how we can how can we use this to compare things and contrast things and, and have fun with games and literature and, and movies and such. All right, so we've basically spent the last 40 minutes defining our terms, right? Right. So one of my favorite things when I was in college was literary criticism. And one of the things you do in literary criticism is you look at a particular piece through a lens. So you might look at Dracula through the lens of its historical context. Or you might look at Star Wars through the lens of the Rebel versus Empire motif. Or you might look at Final Fantasy VII through a feminist lens, if you were so inclined. But one of my favorite things to do is to look at a piece of literature through the lens of another piece of literature. So we've been looking at Final Fantasy largely through the lens of Star Wars this whole time. But there are other pop culture examples I'd like to bring up that have this Rebel versus Empire motif. Or, or in another way, if the Rebels often represent spiritualism or magic or naturalism, and the Empire often represents militarism and and mechanism or industry, we can look at Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. right? So in Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, a brilliant Studio Ghibli film, as almost all of them are, you've got Nausicaa and her little town in a valley of wind. Mm. And they are standing opposed to this giant empire that's running roughshod over the land trying to kill these giant bugs that everyone's afraid of because the bugs kill people and the poisonous air kills people and the Empire thinks they can just destroy them with these giant tanks. And again, we're way in spoiler territory. The answer ends up being not that we should destroy the bugs, but live in harmony with them. So it's not really Rebels versus Empire, but it's definitely living in harmony with the land versus trying to exploit the land for its resources and create machines. Which is, of course, uh, a major theme in both Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy X in particular, right at the heart of those. And so, and yeah, and I think that one's got a decent amount of Rebel versus Empire as well. She, she's certainly a rebel, and there's uh, even the character trope that we talked about. I can't remember now the actual name of the character, but I know in the English vo version he was voiced by Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> Just one of those random things that you know, huh. but the... The kind of love interest, the dude that she has to take care of <laughs> that right. whole movie. Yeah. But he is, again, a sympathetic. He's from the other kingdom. And when she saves him and they get back and there's all this fighting and they're going, and he's going, but I have to kill them. They're the bad guys. And she's going, would you guys knock it off? Right. They're just bugs. Lighten up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another parallel here is in Lord of the Rings, especially when the Ents... When the Ents come upon the tower of the former White Wizard, they find that he, in his alliance with the goblins, has turned that place, he's stripped the forest, and he's mechanized the whole thing, and they wreck, it's basically the forest wrecking industry. This is nature versus industry, and nature is pissed. And again, <laughs> the, the natural side is the good guy side. In Laputa, Castle in the Sky, Again, not so much rebels versus empire, though there are, it is kids, these commoners versus uh, 
a sort of corporation, certainly a, a group bent on taking advantage of the Castle in the Sky and using it as a weapon, even though the Castle in the Sky has, at this point, sort of begun to live in harmony with nature. It has been overgrown with the gardens, and there's, it's very peaceful. Another one of my favorite ones is maybe, uh, again, a creative choice. You're bending the rules a little bit, but is the X-Men, because in X-Men, again, we've got a group of people who are naturally changed by the world. They're naturally different from the world. They have this X ability, and in that particular universe, and it's just how it's written. I'm not making my own comment there. It's their comment. The Empire is, most of the time, the government, the United States government, even, because a central theme almost always in the X-Men is there being laws passed against being mutants. In the most recent adaptation, really good adaptation that's been on television lately, The Gifted, it's living in a world where they're not even debating those laws anymore. They've long since been in effect, and it's essentially illegal to be a mutant. So in that way, the Empire has taken control over the lives of these people, and it's you know, and then of course our stories are always about finding ways for the good guys, <laughs> the the rebel, and it's a band of rebels. That's the other thing is X Men is always a group, and I think that's one of the things that gives it that feeling of a band of rebels going against the big bad empire because it's always a team thing. Where a lot of other superhero stuff is, you know, one man versus the world. X Men is always a, a group of bandits, even when it's other. When, even when it's not the X Men, it's the X Force or the, you know, it's all teams. They're always in a team. Unless you're Deadpool. Deadpool sometimes. Dead, and of. Deadpool joins teams. That's how important it is for X-Men is that Deadpool right. has been on multiple teams. It, it is a group. At its heart, I think those stories are about a group of rebels that are typically outcasts because of the way they were born. Again, going back to our very first trope, where they were born a lot of times, even though some of them can be royals. I think uh, Xavier is probably your, you know, sure. comes from the he's aristocracy. Yeah. yeah, he's got money. He's got money, and his particular power is not troublesome. His thing, you know, isn't, I mean, it can, it absolutely (laughs) can be. It's definitely troublesome, but people don't know about it because it's very subtle. Right. (laughs) People wouldn't necessarily know that he had it, and certainly by the time he's an adult, he's learned to control it, and he doesn't have to do the things that he does with it. Another one of the tropes we talked about, you can't just stand on the sideline. There's a great line in the second X-Men movie when Nightcrawler asks Mystique why she doesn't just look normal all the time, and she says, because we shouldn't have to. Yes. And, And I think that's, again, like Tara's choice, you know. Well, you could stand aside, but then all these people have to live this horrible way, and we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't always have to live in fear. That's usually the big rallying right. cry of our group of rebels, right? We shouldn't have to. Right. The last pop culture example I want to bring up is Ghostbusters, and this might be a bit of a counterexample. If the good guys are usually associated with magic or spiritualism, and the bad guys are usually associated with industry... Ghostbusters definitely flips that because the good guys are associated with science and skepticism and the bad guys are associated with magic and, and occultism, I guess. And so Gozer is definitely in the same vein, uh, you know, a mad god, kind of like Kefka, kind of like uh, Emperor Matthias of Palamecia eventually becomes. But uh-huh. they don't win by being in tune with the earth. They win through science. And we don't really see that in 
I can't think of an example in Final Fantasy. I'm not sure I can think of another example off the top of my head where it's science versus magic and science is the good guy. I think the closest you're going to get is in Final Fantasy X where it's science versus faith and science is the good guy. So it's not necessarily sure, magic. Sure, all bad. Yeah. yeah. But okay. Yeah, maybe that. And it's funny because you, you just gave me another thought of one in, in your counterexample there with Ghostbusters. Interesting example maybe, but Moneyball. Moneyball... Huh. Is yes. A oh, film, very good. Originally, a book about a small group of rebels, the Oakland A's, trying to catch up with the big evil empire, the New York Yankees, who have not only do they have way, way more money and resources and all the stuff that we've talked about, but they keep taking the A's players. So again, it's like you know these these you've got turncoats, and but the A's do use science if you will technology really it's math but they use right. an advanced analytics as a way to try to uh, level the playing field against the big bad evil empire so how do you like Trust that drew creaseman for- <laughs> to bring baseball into a final fantasy conversation i know i know at first i was like oh that's a good example and then i was like oh it's not that interesting you're a baseball writer no, that was a little that's easy. a good example we're keeping uh, that one that's a good okay. one okay okay All right, so we've defined our terms. We've brought up some other examples and possibly counterexamples. So the big question, I think, for this podcast is why, Drew Creaseman, is the Empire bad and the Rebels are good? Or if we go into what they represent, why is faceless, mechanized, military might bad and spiritualism, living in harmony with nature, individualism, good? Or put it another way, like, like get rid of the I destroyed your town, therefore I'm a bad guy. Let's leave that aside for a moment. Just as far as the ideologies go, why are the people who are trying to unite and colonize the world the bad guys and the people who are trying to maintain their individuality the good guys? Well, that's a really interesting and fascinating and deep question, and I have a stupidly simple answer for it, but I think it's backed up (laughs) in almost all of these games, and I I may be, like, jumping to the end point here a little soon. I'd like to beat around the bush a little bit, but what I think it really comes down to is the people who are on the rebel side, spiritualism and nature, it's pluralism. It is being there for others. At the end of Final Fantasy VI, when they confront Kefka at the Tower of Destruction and Chaos, and he talks about how it doesn't matter if people do live in harmony, if they do build up, (laughs) not to get too, uh, you know, preachy or whatever, but if you build sustainable communities, who even cares? It's all going to be destroyed anyway. You know, there's this whole, why fight the mechanized, militarized, faceless industry? And it's because that's always subservient to the one. To the Kefka who has to take over for Gestalt, but it's uh, to the Emperor Palpatine. And while other people may make off well, like we talked about in the Game of Thrones example, it's always to serve the one, and then that makes that one a poisonous position that other people are then after, and it's just this constant poison, whereas the other side of it necessitates pluralism. The characters in Final Fantasy VI, one by one, 
go up and talk to Kefka and talk about the reasons why it's important that they fight. And it's all about other people. It's all about their friends, their family, the people they've fallen in love with. Even if the people they've fallen in love with have died, they're still fighting for them. And so to answer your question, I think ultimately the argument at least that Final Fantasy is making that I wholeheartedly buy, while they still give a nuanced take at how sometimes mechanisms and industry can be good and even and good people can come from empires like we've talked about i think their ultimate argument is that in order to be at one with nature and in order to be a spiritually good and moral person you have to include other people in your thinking perhaps another way to say that might be that to try to homogenize cultures to try to tell everyone that they have to live in a particular way to join a particular group tends to build resentment and that by accepting other cultures by accepting differences in music and food and holidays and what we celebrate and how we celebrate that doing that by accepting the pluralism that you can build stronger communities. I think that's been shown historically. You already brought up the example of Alexander the Great. He did, through military might, take control of a large part of the known world. But he also didn't make people give up their holidays, didn't make people give up their language, didn't make people give up their books, right? Right. I think that is shown also in Final Fantasy IV. We've got all these disparate kingdoms who are willing to come together on their own after the the alien on the moon uh, is defeated and people are no longer being mind-controlled. I think that's also shown in Lord of the Rings. The humans, the dwarves, the elves, and the hobbitses, they all come together not only for this particular fight, but to, to recognize each other. The elves eventually leave for the west and the dwarves eventually close themselves off in their mountains and it becomes the age of men. Hobbits basically become humans as well. But it starts with this coming together of we we understand each other even though we're different. Not all of us eat six or seven meals a day, but I can understand and appreciate that. And you do you, hobbits, and <laughs> and, and we you know we can come together like you said and and accept pluralism. Whereas that that monolith empire that I'm going to stand here and we're all going to do it my way, and if you don't, I'm going to blow you up with my eye of judgment, doesn't fly with a lot of people. So I, I was trying to put aside the we're going to start the game by blowing up your town trope because that makes it really easy to dislike the bad guys. But at the same time, that's what empires tend to do. They want to destroy the out, the outliers and make us a more homogenized society. And I think Final Fantasy's argument largely is, let's not do that. Right. You know, Rufus Shinra famously gives that speech when he takes over about how he's going to rule people with fear because it's the most effective way to get people to do things. Clearly a comment on propaganda in the real world and the way fear tactics are used, reached out through the media, through state-sponsored or sometimes just looking like it's state-sponsored media to control people through fear. And then one of the things that I think is really fascinating is the way that it's handled in 15. They take an interesting twist on it because a character we didn't talk about as a sympathetic former imperial citizen of the empire is our friend Prompto. Prompto. I love Prompto. 
again, spoiler, sorry, but twist near the end of the game when it's revealed that he is a citizen of the Empire, that he was originally born there and he didn't want to tell them because he was afraid that they would not accept him. And it's really cool the way in that game, after everything those guys have been through, the way they kind of, they're more mad like any, any good family that he didn't just come out and tell them. Right. They're not mad that he's that he was born in the Empire. They're just they like just sort of rib him like brothers would. And you know what? So, oftentimes to make a dramatic point, some shows, some movies, some games would have made them hate Prompto for the next ten hours. And you know what? They show a lot of they show emotional intelligence in this moment where they're like, Yeah, it's not like you ever treated me like your king before. Yeah, right, right. They they go right back to ribbing and it shows again, I think getting back to our central theme, maybe the central theme of Final Fantasy, which is that your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your family, the people you choose to care and love about, it doesn't always have to be the family you're born into. Those guys weren't born into the same family. They chose to go on that road trip together. And that's what makes them the good guys. It's not necessarily that they're writing, fighting for the correct ideological cause, though I think that's, you know, oftentimes, like you said, that gets back to the, well, they didn't burn any towns down, though Cecil did. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, he did. You know, so there are some arguments. How good a guy is Cecil? Is he redeemable? What Final Fantasy, you know, Seven, all those guys worked for the Empire at some point. How redeemable are they? You know, they're eco-terrorists as well, as you mentioned. But right. ideologies aside and heinous acts aside and body counts aside, who's responsible for the most murders? I think the overwhelming reason why our good guys are our good guys is because they fight for each other and the bad guys fight for themselves. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by following us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Also be sure to find us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash FFWeekly for more episodes and content, and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time when we embark on a sequel that will forever redefine that term. Join the fight against the Palamecian Empire and learn that Final Fantasy will force us to say goodbye to some dear friends.